We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Today on the podcast, we are honored to welcome back James Finley. James Finley is a contemplative practitioner and clinical psychologist. He serves as a core faculty member at the Center for Action and Contemplation with Richard Rohr and Cynthia Bourgeau. And he's also the author of Christian Meditation, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, and The Contemplative Heart. On his website, contemplativeway.org, where you can find videos he did with Sounds True, online courses, live teachings, and all kinds of resources for things like trauma, sexual harassment, responses to the election, and more. And of his website, he writes, the contemplative way is like a monastery without walls, a gathering place for people who are searching for something more, something more meaningful, intimate, and richly present to the gift and the miracle of their own life. Some might remember that I first encountered Jim at the International Thomas Merton Society Conference in 2015 at Bellarmine University. There, I was struck by his words as he said, the poet cannot make the poem happen, but the poet can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the gift of the poem. And similarly, lovers cannot force the oceanic oneness, but can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to the gift of that. I'm delighted and overjoyed to welcome back James to the podcast. So without further ado, James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to we were able to do this. <clears throat> uh, the, the plan here is that I'll just share a series of reflections with you on the spirituality of silence for maybe a half hour up to 40 minutes. And then we can have a dialogue with each other for uh, up to maybe 20 minutes or so. We'll see how it goes. We might end a little early. We'll see how it goes. <clears throat> so this is a series kind of open-ended intuitions on being sensitized to um, the spirituality of the role silence plays in spirituality. I want to begin with uh, some years ago, I, there's a Jesuit priest from the Netherlands named Hans Konen, who was also a Zen sensei. And he led a Christian Zen retreat, meditation intensive retreat. So there's like six hours of sitting a day in liturgy and so on is very nice. But he shared that, um, there are this idea that there's three kinds of silence. I'd like to start there. He said, first, there's imposed silence in which we're asked to be silent. For, for example, in a library or other situations out of respect, like quiet, please, or don't, no loud talking kind of thing, silence. He said, then there's chosen silence as an act of freedom. So we, we, we choose to be silent. And then he said, there's eternal silence, which is the silence of God. He says, so in spirituality, it's, the ch it's freely choosing to listen to eternal silence of God. 
in which God speaks us and all things into being. Can I become so silent that I can hear God speaking me into being, all things into being, the divinity or the holiness, the virginal newness of all things. And so it's in that light then, or with this kind of sense of it, this is where we see the Christian mystics speaking of silence. When they speak of silence, they speak of it in these terms. And another observation that I would make related is there's a, a classic in uh, Christian contemplative spirituality uh, by Guigo II, A Ladder for Monks. And uh, I, I did a chapter on it in my book, Christian Meditation. And this has become kind of a classical kind of distinction within this, in the literature. And uh, the latter for monks, the latter is, begins first with Lexio Divina, then Meditatio, meditation, prayer and contemplation. So what, meditate, what Lexio Divina is, Lexio Divina is a stance of sustained receptivity to God speaking to us. So in a preeminent sense, it would be sitting with scripture as God's word. And we open ourselves to hear God personally speaking to us in the depths of our heart, how God speaks to us in God's word. And as we, as we listen to God, that requires of us that we put aside the noise of our own conclusions and assumptions and observations <clears throat> to be in this kind of humble stance of receptive openness infused with love to be open to this word <clears throat> this living word of god <clears throat> then meditation then is then where it's our turn in effect god says i've spoken to you now you talk to me and so meditatio at this level is discursive meditation using thoughts and reasons illumined by faith so i take in god's word for example, that I use where Jesus says, fear not. So I take that in and I, I immediately sense it, its inherent beauty even before I think about it. There is, it's inherently consoling prior to even reflecting on it. But as I take that in and now God's waiting to hear, like, what, what do you think? And so I say to God back, well, I, I, it's, a, it's a lovely thought. But I'm, I'm afraid a lot of times, actually. By the way, Lord, you were afraid. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you sweat blood. See? And so, um, I don't know. See? Or is it possible that I don't know what it means not to be afraid? See? Is that I'm not to be afraid of being afraid? How, help me to understand more deeply what it means not to be afraid. And that's my meditatio. See, that's my... So then I listen again. I, I say receptively, oh, I go to the next verse, or I sit with that one. I might journal it out. So there's this kind of ongoing open-ended exchange between myself and God, and this kind of deepening, um, opening up of the layered meanings of the endlessly evocative nature of God's word in my heart in dialogue with God. And as this goes on, this meditatio, the meditation goes on, then that evokes prayer, which is the third one of the ladder. And prayer is the response of the heart, from the heart center. Out of the depths I cry unto thee, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. That is, help me with this. Like, I, can't, I can't do this without you. 
I cannot do this with you. So the prayer, the, the prayer then is the longing. And then it's the longing to consummate the longings. See, I long to consummate these longings, which you've awakened within my heart by listening to you. See the dilemma you got me in here, Lord. See, and or, or, or how shall I go? See, like that. And he said, these longings, Guigo says, he said, all this is very personal. You know how this happens in each person. But what happens is the longings intensify. And he says you become uh, unconsolable. Because what happens is that all your longings, since they're finite, cannot receive the infinite fulfillment of God who awakened those longings within you. And so you sit at the edge of your own powerlessness, crying out. And then he says what happens is that God breaks in on you mid-sentence and kind of an ecstatic oneness beyond yourself. See? And it's kind of a momentary foreshadowing of eternal life. See, that God, that the, when the veil parts in death, uh, this infinite union with the infinite love of God is our destiny. That somehow that infinite union is already hidden in the depths of ourselves. And we momentarily rest in it, like resting in God, resting in us, beyond words, beyond images, beyond thought, and so on. And then he says that that moment passes. The moment passes. And as it passes, we drop back down to the first rung of the ladder again, back to the Lexio. So we're sitting there, the scriptures are open, the tear-stained page. You got our finger replaced where we left off. See? But now it's different. Because now we know that at any moment the word can catch fire with this. See? So then the Lexio, it repeatedly starts all over again, but now it starts in a more intimate way because we now know by experience what at any moment can happen. See? And the meditation is different because we know at any moment this, this fullness can break in on, and in some way already present in the devotional sincerity of our exchange. See? And this goes right to this longing which is uh, filled with this unexpected consummation. We're powerless to attain it, but it attains us in the deep acceptance of our powerlessness to attain it. See? And, then, and then there, there it is again, see, the oneness. The next time it happens in its fullness isn't up to us. It's not our business, really. We're just being well-seasoned in the art of this. And so then we learn to become... Is this like a listening presence, like a listening presence. Uh, speak, Lord, your servant listens like this. And then this listening uh, then gets habituated. See? Uh, so it becomes an underlying habitual stance that we go through life. We're kind of, it's a kind of perpetual conversion process. T.S. Eliot says to hope too soon is to hope for the wrong thing. See? But to speak too soon is to speak for the wrong, say the wrong thing. So how can I hold in abeyance my assumptions about what I think it means and keep my heart receptively open to what you're teaching me that it means like this. So this is the tipping point for all the mystics, each in their own, his or her own way, tries to lure us toward this contemplative point of, of, of oneness. For Teresa of Avila, how, how she puts it in the interior castle, she says, uh, speaking to the nuns at Carmel, Avila. She says, sisters, when we talk to God, we should be very aware who we're talking to. 
you know, we're talking to the creator of the universe. You know, we're talking to the person that your next heartbeat belongs more to God than to you. Let you be presumptuous. Your next breath, your very existence, the stars in the sky. See? So she says, when you talk to God, then have deep reverence. See? First of all, God speaks to you. Then when you talk to God, uh, then speak with this deep reverential sense of talking to God who talks to you. The imagery she uses, I'll paraphrase it as you talk to God. She says, well, what you do is you keep leaning in. The God says, in effect, God says, like lean in a little closer and whisper in my ear the longings of your heart. See? And as you lean closer, 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 you're listening is an echo of God's eternal listening to you because God has really chosen to be infinitely in love with you as the beloved, as the beloved. See? Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence. And so she says in these seven mansions of the soul, the first three mansions are in the order, they're important psychological, spiritual maturity as we do the inner work of working through. She says, when you get to the fourth mansion, she says, she calls it the quiet. She calls it the quiet. She says, you're inclined not to move very much. You're, most people will close their eyes. She says, the time has come to think less and love more. She says, the trouble with third mansion people is that reason has not yet been conquered by love, the problem. It, it's entirely too reasonable. See? And, and so there's this deep, deep listening, like leaning into this kind of silence in which God, in this attentive silence, takes us to herself, takes us to himself in silence, in this unitive state of, of oneness. And then she says, out of all this, is that then, so that when we speak, we speak out of that. See, see in other words, the, the, the prophetic word, the word that changes the world, see, is this prophetic word. It's like Jesus spending all nights in prayer. See, and then came out roaming the earth looking for people. See, and he was looking for suffering. So we're, we're transformed in this. And then we kind of go out to be present to and for each other. In this, And so this then is where I think ties into ministry or ties into um, in the pastoral dimensions of this kind of perpetual transformation. Rollo May, the existential psychologist, has this image. He says, you look at an Olympic high diver on the edge of the platform. And just before they dive, they pause. He said, they dive out of the pause. And that's what makes the dive eloquent. If they would dive out of their ego, all the cameras are watching me, I'm gonna mess this up. And he says, so what we're learning to do then 
is uh, learning how to listen so that we don't talk before we sat with it. There's how, so that when I do speak, what I am going to say comes out of my listening. It comes out of my inner attentiveness about the dialogue. So I'd like to share some more examples of this, of how this vertical depth dimension of listening to God, speaking to us, intersects the horizontal dimension of our passage through time within ourselves and then with each other. When I was writing the book I wrote years ago, Merton's Palace of Nowhere, which is on ultimate identity, hidden with Christ and God before the origins of the universe. And how do we, how do we find this true self? How can I join God in knowing who God knows me to be before the origins of the universe? And what is that path? And uh, when I wrote that book, the last chapter is called The Insight, which is this unitive state. And so I wrote, I'd left the monastery at this point, and I wrote a letter to Dan Walsh. And Dan Walsh taught metaphysics at the monastery. He taught in Duns Scotus and Thomas Aquinas, and the medieval school of philosophical theology. And he taught that there at the monastery. So I, I, I wrote a letter to Dan Walsh, and I told him where I was coming my book. <clears throat> I said, <clears throat> how can I communicate this to people out here, this unitive state? <clears throat> and uh, he said, you can't communicate it. But it will communicate itself through you if you're convinced in what you say. But it won't be you communicating it. And you know it'll be being communicated because there'll be a response in the listener. Deep calls unto deep. Like the depth from which the words come, not from, but through the person who's speaking, are empowered to reach that same depth in the listener. And deep unto deep, there's a resonance in the room, like a mutual recognition of what no one in the room can explain. Merton Thomas Merton called this spiritual communication. I want to give another example of this. Now, there was a, a nun, Sister Mary Luke Tobin, who was a mother superior of the Sisters of Loreto in Louisville, um, not far from Gethsemane. And uh, he, she and Merton were close. She was the only woman officially invited to the Second Vatican Council, believe it or not. <laughs> and uh, says something. This one woman got in. So there you go. Times are changing. It's a process. She, um, she used to have me there. She had this Thomas Merton Center. So it was a food distribution center for the poor. And it was at Loretto College. And I spoke there. And at this weekend, this weekend contemplative retreat, there was, there'd be liturgy, there'd be Eucharist. And the priest who was invited to preside at liturgy gave the homily. And in this homily, he said that he had for years had been a missionary in some remote area among some indigenous peoples. And uh, he was diagnosed with cancer. And he's in the United States for cancer treatment. And he said, from a medical point of view, they weren't successful. So he asked his superiors if he could go back and die, the people that he was with all these years. He said, you know, he said, I, I came there to bring Christ to them. He said, I hope I did. He said, but I know they brought Christ to me. Because in teaching me to live, they taught me how to die. And you could feel in his words, you know, this 
see, that's why I say the mystic isn't someone who says, listen to what I've experienced. The mystic says, look what love has done to me. See, like there's nobody less. Merton says, I'm blown down the street like leaves scattered in all directions. He said, do I even have a life? Merton says, we can't love and live on our own terms. He said, God, he said, we should all get down on our knees right now and thank God we can't live the way we want to. See, God doesn't let us get away with it. See, but God takes us to himself. God takes us to herself in the unresolved matters of our heart like that. So I, I, I think this is listening. See, I think it's because our listening is an echo of God's eternal listening to us. So we might say poetically, God says to us, I created you to have someone to listen to. Because I just love it when you talk to me like this. And my listening, I've created in my heart an echo of my eternal listening to you. So that each unto each, the listening and the word unites in a kind of a union. Then we then, like the soul of the apostolate, see, then we then go out to communicate and share that with each person we meet. That's the depth dimension of every healing encounter, really. How, how can I, if I put it this way, I'll end, the, I'll end with this note on uh, therapy. Let's say you come in to see me for therapy with some issue of trauma. And we sit down, we kind of start talking like this. And as we listen, I said to you, I'd like to ask you a question to help me understand better what you're saying. And it's a real question too, I really am kind of so I can join you. And the question I ask is such that you can't answer me without listening more deeply to yourself for a moment. And in that little moment, you're listening to yourself in my presence. And as you listen to yourself in my presence, the isolation in which the trauma has claimed you for itself begins to open up. Sometimes you get the feeling you're in the presence of someone who's more present to you than you are. You can get the feeling there's someone who sees a value in you you can't yet bear to see. And when you, when you speak, I, I listen. I listen to that. And as I listen to it, we talk about that. And then I, then I, then I, then I say to you, well, how do you think we're doing? You think we're together here? So you say yes. And... Uh, if I say, if you say no, I say, let's back it up. We went too fast. And so we need to stay on the same page. And then I said to that being, so I have another question. This being so, then what I don't get is, in order to answer, you have to listen more deeply to yourself. And what happens, we get close to the hurting place. And how do we come out from behind the curtain to risk sharing was too painful to bear? And how can you know you're not alone in the midst of your pain? And how, knowing you're not alone, does that heal a kind of primal abandonment that still lives inside of you, a, a, a primal betrayal, a primal thing see, that keeps the, your heart closed off, see, for fear that if you ever opened your heart again, it, it would happen again, you can't bear it. But if you don't open your heart, it means the trauma has the better of you. And so how can I be with someone who helps me to like that? So it's like, how can we learn to save the whole world one person at a time, starting with ourselves? See, how can I, by knowing my own vulnerability, my own brokenness, my own like this, and how can I, in knowing my how infinitely loved I am in my fragility, 
pass on the contagious energy of that to each person that I'm with, like that, I think. So those would be my thoughts on silence. And I think what happens with us always with this is that what silence is really all about often is the experience of being silent. We're silenced. We're silent because we're silenced. And we're silenced because we don't know what to say. And we don't know what to say because we're in the presence of something, the intimacy of which, or the eloquence of which, or the vulnerability of See, we don't know what to say, and our heart breaks when we try like this. And then when we speak out of that, that's the prophetic word coming out of our own heart. Uh, Martin Heidegger says the vocation of the poet is to evoke the holy. And it's the contagious energy. I was listening to Krista Tippett with the interview with Mary Oliver, which she did just before she died. It's very touching. So I think this is silence. This is the thing, I think. So let's do this. Let's open this up for like a dialogue about this or related matters. Let's see. Yeah. I, first of all, thank you. I've I've been taking so many notes on so many different things, but I'm especially in this moment, struck by this deep listening and how much healing can come from deep listening, human to human, um, especially in the world we live in today. Right. Um, you know, not beyond our, our personal relationships and beyond, I think one could even make an argument for nature and ecological justice and exactly. you know there's a way to to deeply listen to the earth you know as well as our our partners and lovers and friends and those that disagree with us so thank you for sharing that i think is all i'm trying to say yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right now that ends part one of our two-part interview with james finley next week we will continue the conversation as the Encountering Silence team discusses the topic further with James Finlay. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit Patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. <laughs>